welcome to Fintech Insider News, your weekly go-to podcast for all things fintech and financial services. Of course, we've been downloaded in more than 150 countries and regularly top the business charts in iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, special shout out to Fagan for leaving us this lovely review there. If you are in any way working or are involved in the world of FS, then this is a must listen. It gives you a global perspective allows you to know the technology and trends from the likes of China, India and Africa, and how this will shake up the established West. But for those not in FS, don't switch off. These insights and discussions are equally applicable in any sector. There's a pretty big backlog of listening, but it's worth it for the gold insights there. For those not in the fintech circuit junket, then this is possibly the only time you'll hear from such thought leaders, and all for free. This podcast has driven home that a lot of my own thinking is sound, and just this week indirectly provided me career advice to actually step outside the world of FS and follow my passion of digital transformation. Keep up the great work, guys. Thank you, Fagan. And we are recording from Level 39 in London. And as you know, London is the heart of fintech. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, David Breer. David, hello. Hello. And Aidan Davies. Aidan, hello. Hello. Hey, um, for those who don't know, 11FS is a global consulting firm that specializes in helping banks become truly digital, from workshops to speaking, digital projects, and building banks. If you need us, get in touch. Joining us today for the analysis of the news, we have Sarah Kachansky, the Senior Research Analyst for FinTech at Business Insider. Sarah, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And Alex Ball, the Managing Fintech Consultant at ING. Alex, great for you to be here. Hey, pleasure to be here, guys. Uh, it's, it's great to have you along. Jumping right in with the first story. So first one up, David, uh, Innovate Finance launches an ambassador program. Does this mean we've got like international ambassadors going on? Do we get special badges? What, what's the deal here? <laughs> Pretty much. I'd, I'd like to have a, one of those special badges. That would be quite fun, wouldn't it? But um, nobody can mention ambassadors without me thinking of Ferrero Rocher. I'm not sure if it's you, but um, <laughs> I'm not too sure if there's any connection to this story, but maybe there should be. But yeah, it's a really good one. And actually, our very own Chris Skinner is one of these ambassadors. Equally, uh, Oliver Busman, Andrew, formerly of Standard Chart. I believe as well. So there's some really interesting people who are actually on this list. So congratulations to Chris for, for making this one. Congratulations to Oliver for making this one. And I, I'm really sort of interested to see what it is that they do next. The idea is that they are there to promote uh, fintech in the UK globally. So they are out there speaking day in, day out and uh, really sort of representing what they're doing, which is quite interesting given, I guess, there aren't that many people who are probably based in the UK who are on this list. I was but, just wondering that myself, looking at Mike Siegel as well. He's based on the West Coast. Hmm. So interesting list and, and uh, you know, I think a good idea of, of what um, you know the, the Innovate Finance guys have, have done to spread the word, as it were. But um, I guess it will be an interesting one to see how much this um, you know plays out. Yeah. yeah. What's the end product? Because it feels like it's endorsing something that Innovate Finance did a good job of anyway, which was networking. But I guess if, if it can mean more networking and more work coming to London, that can be a good thing. I mean, Alex, Sarah, any thoughts on this one? Well, it's a validation of these guys and you know, their thought leadership that they're doing in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I'd be interested to see what they actually are, are going to do that's different to what's already being done. I mean, I, I have a feeling that we're kind of getting to maybe saturation point with some of these programs now and you've got ambassadors and you've got so many different, you know, thought leadership groups going on and you've got the Bank of England's got its own community it's building. So I'd, I'd be intrigued just to see how it goes, really. 
Everybody has a community, but it's it's the doing that counts, I suppose. Does but, it mean uh, we have to be more reverential to Chris? Do we have to bow before him? Or? <laughs> Does he get a badge or a or hat? A or? <laughs> I, I think we give him a slightly bigger, nicer chair when he's on the podcast. I think that might be what he'll look for, but uh, he well, always he, likes preferential service anyway. He's knocking he? on a bit. We've got to look after his lumbar. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, that was just for you. <laughs> Moving on. (laughs) Uh, So just as a reminder, we'll be at the Innovate Finance Global Summit in April and Fintech Insiders who want to join us can get 30% off tickets with discount code Fintech Insider. Uh, Next story up, there's one where the House of Fraser owner, Sandpower, has pulled investment in the Challenger Bank tandem. So Sandpower being the Chinese owner of House of Fraser, they were talking about doing an investment in tandem. And of course, as we know, Tandem being the challenger bank here in London who are looking to launch kind of a new digital banking proposition. For those who aren't regular listeners and this is your first podcast, you'll see there was actually a Tandem Takeover episode we did about 10 to 12 episodes ago. So Ricky Knox, Ruth Hancock joined us on the show. Uh, Really interesting bank, but I can't help but feel overwhelmingly quite sad about this one. Um, Sarah, did you have any thoughts about what's going on with Tandem here? Yeah, I mean, Mike, that's my feeling as well, is I feel very sorry for them. Uh, they've put a lot of work in, and this is this is kind of quite evidently nothing to do with them. This is The, the news, as it came out, and certainly as I read it, was that this was a decision made by their Chinese investors because they feared for what the Chinese regulators may do to them. You know, it's all linking back to that prevention of capital outflow that the Chinese government's working on. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it, it, it's unfortunate in that it might, it might reflect badly on tandem. It might reflect, you know, people who don't understand the full story might then think that there was something else going on that you know they don't know about and that seemed a shame because as far as you know i can tell they've got interesting ideas they've got a good team working on it um so i can only hope that they find somebody else to sort of just step in there um particularly as it's it's you know affecting their ability to get that license they needed that money that was a prerequisite of them getting a license and getting live so you know i really hope somebody can step in and fill the breach feels like a an interesting timing as well doesn't it and i think the uh unfortunate element of this one probably is it puts them in quite a weak position when it comes to negotiations around doing it because everybody knows that they need that money now and the the sort of clock is ticking with regards to their application for the license and how quickly they have to start using it and actually implementing it so just to echo your thoughts really i think it's it's you know, terrible timing and sad. Hopefully somebody will come forward with, uh, was it 29 million that they've lost? So, you know, not the largest amount of money in the world. I'm sure, you know, any VC out there will probably be licking their lips with an opportunity to uh, get a bit of a bargain right now. So um, our very own Jason spoke to Ruth Hancock, the chief customer officer at Tandem for her thoughts. So I'm here with Ruth Hancock, chief customer officer of Tandem. Hey, Ruth. Hi. I see, unfortunately, you've had some some bad news this week. Uh, so I really appreciate you taking the time just to talk to us a little bit about uh, about what's happened. Um, and, and I guess we should start out with you know what you've heard and the letter you had to send out to uh, to the co-founders. Yeah. So we, as people may know, we signed a really exciting deal just before Christmas with Fraser Financial Services. Um, to do a strategic partnership with House of Fraser and introduce them to Tandem's products. Unfortunately, while part of that deal completed before Christmas, we found out last week that the final phase won't be completing, primarily because they're concerned that the China State Administration won't approve the transaction. So it came totally out of the blue for us um, and obviously changes our fundraising situation quite considerably. So sorry to hear that. That's... um... It must be horrific to have that come sort of way out of left field, you know, at such an exciting time. So I understand that has an effect on the products you can offer? 
Yeah, it does. So what we decided to do was try and reduce our capital requirements before launch. So we went to the PRA and we voluntarily gave back our deposit taking permission, which means we can launch in the same timescales we were expecting to, but we won't be offering savings accounts in the short term. We will, though, be offering our app to customers and be offering credit cards this year as well. Great. So firstly, you know, I guess this is startup life, the, the pivot, the something unexpected happens and you, you change but still deliver great value to end customers. What, what will they be able to get from your app? So they'll be able to see all of their financial accounts in one place. Um, and they'll be able to find opportunities to genuinely save money. Our mission at Tandem has always been to help customers improve their relationship with their money, reduce the stress they feel in managing that day in, day out. And none of that will change. They'll all be able to do that free of charge by using our app. So that piece of Tandem absolutely continues. So a slight change of plan, a slight pivot, but still heading on with the same mission and hopefully the same community of co-founders to, uh, to work on it with you. Absolutely. As you said, in startup land, it's all about pivots. So this is one pivot. And we hope that very soon we'll pivot back to bank as well. Um, But in the short term, our products will be launched almost as they were going to be. Well, that's great. Ruth, thanks for taking a few minutes to to talk us through that. I wish you the the best of luck and I look forward to, uh, to installing the Tandem app. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Jason. And thank you very much, Ruth. Um, David, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So hearing what she's saying, it kind of feels like they're going to more of a a similar approach, actually, to what Monzo and Starling are doing. So, you know, they're going to launch into the market, go much more of a marketplace setup rather than actually just offering their own products. I know when we spoke to them before, they were looking at doing a a mix of both of those things. But, you know, this doesn't mean really the end in the way that Ruth's actually describing it. It means probably just a slightly different phasing in terms of where they're going. You know, savings, after all, is not the the place that banks are making huge amounts of money at this point anyway. So if they can grow a community around it, they can create opportunities to to open up revenue channels through uh, affiliate deals, through selling other people's products, then actually there's still a, you know, a, a direction that they can take to come to market and be one of the guys who are really challenging the big boys. They need to get to market because they've got to start acquiring some customers. I mean, and Monzo have been doing that for quite a while now. You know, Starling are finally up on their feet. Um, you know, Atom have a slightly different proposition, but again, they've got people through the door. So I kind of think there is that element of getting something out there is important. I agree. Um, I think the other point about the savings accounts is from, from, you know, my perspective, from a traditional bank of savings, you get the money in, you can lend it out. That's where you start monetizing. Um, and that is probably quite attractive to some of those investors that they might want to get in. So mm. it, I, I guess they might have to be thinking about their monetization strategy and, you know, how they're, how they're going to pitch themselves as attractive to, to regain that investment that they're, yeah. they're chasing still. I think, it, I think it's definitely interesting because, like you say, we've got Monzo and Starling doing the, the marketplace. You know, we're only going to be a current account. We're going to sell other people's products. We've got Atom at the other end who are sort of creating all of the sort of universal bank products that are in there. In tandem, we're really sort of sitting in that middle space. You know, arguably, this just pushes them initially towards the end of where Monzo and Starling are, are kind of playing. And, you know, to your point, Sarah, it actually means they've got to maybe change tax slightly in terms of the, the customers that they're going after. So... Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. You know, future's going to tell, right? Absolutely. Um, so good luck to Tandem. Hopefully they can pull it back together. Rolling on with the news, the uh, next story up is uh, one Aiden here in Bloomberg where Ant Financial are said to be considering a higher offer for MoneyGram. So we've been following this saga for a couple of weeks now on FinTech yeah, Insider. I think it was announced at a flurry of PR back at the end of January, beginning of February, that uh, Ant Financial bought MoneyGram. And we were like, whoa, 
that's a serious deal. Since then, it doesn't seem to be the signed deal that it was. Uh, Euronet have nipped in and put in a, a higher offer, about a dollar a share more. And Financial still considering whether to come back or not. I think Alessandro had to me on the and podcast that we announced this on, made a great point about will the US regulators go for this? And uh, the CMO of uh, Euronet has said, you know, us being a Kansas-based company, we're probably <laughs> going to have a more uh, a simpler time for the US regulators. So, very interesting story. Uh, do you go with the kind of safety and synergies of a US company, Euronet, fine, or big, exciting financial woo technology? <laughs> I think there's two things in this. Is like clearly this and the last story don't announce something until it's done, right? <laughs> you know, there's probably a consistent message there in terms of where we're going. I, I think. Is this just negotiation tactics from from them in terms of MoneyGram trying to sort of drive up slightly? You know, they've got another person involved in doing it. There's this undercurrent of, you know, is a Trump administration going to allow somebody to come in and buy a thing, which might sort of slightly blow the lines on this one. But it kind of feels like Ant Financial have just got the money to kind of make this theirs anyway. So I think if it's a negotiation point, it'll get resolved super, super quickly, right? But we're in a new age of um, geopolitical M&A. So mergers and acquisitions used to be just does it work on paper? Um, you know the old uh, '80s M&A kind of cutthroat. Let's just do the deal has, has seemed to have gone. Uh, with the last story, we're talking about uh, Tandem potentially having their money pulled because they didn't think uh, so that you know the Chinese parent company didn't think it would go past the Chinese authorities. So you've got state kind of concerns there. Similarly, we're speculating the same thing may happen the other way around if China comes and invests in a big U.S. company in any way. Um, it, this is a symptom of a bigger geopolitical kind of concern. I don't FinTech that, is just being like, Explain that, because if I was China, I'd want to own everything, right? That was basically how the, you know, so, the so British I'm, Empire I'm, was based, right? I, I'm, went out and, I'm saying that China may want to go out and own things. Yeah. China may be happy with that. But that what's happened here is that there's something in the tandem instance where the individual company doesn't think that the owning the foreign thing makes any sense. It's the individual company that's made that decision rather than China saying no. Whereas on the other side of it, you, you've got kind of um, people speculating that it might actually be the government saying no rather than the individual company. So it's coming from the yeah. government down rather than the company up. Yeah. That was the. But I, I guess in the tandem instance, it f- sort of feels like from everything that I've read that actually it looks like they don't know that the government wouldn't like it, but they've got the sense that yeah. the government wouldn't like it, which feels like they've probably been told something, but they can't say they've been told something <laughs> to a certain degree. Yeah, you know, like it feels like you wouldn't pull out of such a significant deal without somebody really saying, mum and dad won't like that, really. You know, So I, that I kind of feel like if this comes down to a money thing with the, the sort of acquisition of MoneyGram, then Ant Financial have got more than enough money to stump up to kind of do it. If it's some sort of, you know, backroom political thing that nobody can really sort of talk about, then I, I think they've got a lot further to, to go to really sort of, I guess, convince the government. But, it, you know, as somebody, if you own a company, you start getting into a territory where the government can tell you, who you can and can't sell that to. That's kind of a bad place to be, right? Well, yes and no. I think there are things that can sometimes be in the national interest. We've seen historical precedents where a foreign company wants to come in and buy steel plants, and actually that would mean that thousands, if not tens of thousands of jobs would be lost in, in the process, and governments have said no and stepped in and subsidized and looked for other owners and so on. So it's it's not an easy answer. Um, I can see the legitimate arguments for it, but I take your point, which is there's probably not a legitimate argu- argument for Ant Financial not owning MoneyGram, um, other than perhaps the, the the kind of the cybersecurity one. 
on the um, you know on the scale of administration problems that's happened since Trump got in, this is probably pretty low down yeah. on the sensational one, right? So, um, yeah. but still, it seems like a strange um, a strange thing for them to get involved in. I guess thirty seven percent approval rates and falling. Alrighty, next story up is one on Business Insider. Uh, so, French <laughs> officials are in London again, wooing fintech uh, and finance firms to Paris post Brexit. Uh, Sarah, you got any insights on this one? I've got some thoughts on it. Um, <laughs> I think I think the, the, the argument is is going to rumble on for a while, isn't it, as to whether somebody's going to steal London's fintech crown and is it going to be Germany or the Netherlands or France? And I think we probably will see a certain amount of kind of shift. We're already starting to see, you know, money move out of London and some companies sort of shift into Europe, not necessarily because of Brexit, but because, you know, I don't know, it's cheaper to be in Berlin, so why wouldn't you, you start there? On the on the French side specifically, I think it's a valiant effort. I do sort of think that there may be some hurdles there that wouldn't necessarily apply elsewhere. I mean, there's obviously a language hurdle, which um, is to be considered, certainly if you're looking at US companies coming in, US investors coming in, they like things in English, they just do. It, it's a truth of the truism of it. The other thing is that France, you know, whether it's fair or not, does have a reputation for red tape, to put it mildly, certainly with regards to labour laws, with regards to taxes. And, you know, whether that's accurate or not, you've got to look at the impression that France has, and I think they've got an awful long way to go, particularly these guys who are coming over and, you know, having these meetings, they're going to have to do an awful lot of work to convince people that Paris is where they, they really should be moving to if they're moving or, you know, if you're a US company, you should go to Paris instead of Berlin or Amsterdam or anywhere else. Broadly, the idea of there being options for startups in Europe and there being a better ecosystem that's not as centred on London could probably be a good thing. I mean, stronger ecosystems elsewhere. Um, but one trade mission to woo some companies probably doesn't give it to you. So as a result, this is, like you say, it, it's laudable and a great idea but there's probably a lot more from a policy perspective and uh, we've had um, Lawrence Wintermeyer on the show a few times and a few other people say you know, policy is the UK's advantage uh, can they can they get there on the policy side? I, I love the idea though that French officials have, have sort of come over for two days and you know this idea that they've sort of set up meetings with all the, the eminent fintech players in London. Having had a bit of a random DM around of uh, many of those players. Nobody that I know who I would consider eminent fintech players has has actually been invited to these meetings at all. So it'll be really interesting to see who they're uh, really talking to. But the French are very stylish, aren't they? So I imagine it was a very sort of sexy two days of whining and dining, probably lots of cheese involved, I imagine. But uh, one thing that they sort of said here is that lots of kind of vague threats in this, which was quite interesting. So the uh, as well as trying to convince companies to move, French officials are also trying to force businesses out of Britain. So the French are keen to stop UK-based firms from being able to clear euro-denomination trades post-Brexit. Currently around 60% of the trillion euro market passes through London. So this is kind of a bit of a carrot and quite a large stick on this one as well, coming out of the French finance minister. So not all nicey-nicey two-day trip to London, a little bit of kind of force people out of London as well. Yeah, the, the euro clearing thing of, of London is, is really significant. And we saw there was the uh, story um, that we're, we're not covering today about Goldman Sachs moving a few hundred people into Europe. And uh, that euro clearing issue is a worry. But at the same time, euro clearing is not all London does. There's a lot more that the city of London does. It, it happens to be one of the jewels in the crown. It's one of the, the most important things we do from a financial center standpoint. But even then, I think you know, if you're a fintech company based here and you need euro clearing, you'll go buy euro clearing from some 
company, you won't move country because you can't get it from a UK-based bank. You'll just get it from another bank. I mean, that feels like they've mixed, they've mixed their threats as well. Do they want fintech or are we talking about the fact that we're going to steal London as a financial centre and we mm. want actually, actually, we don't both. want fintech. Well, both probably, <laughs> it's true. Um, this is a bit of um, innovation theatre, isn't it? And it's politics and played out in the press. And it's uh, these things, I think, don't really work when it's a two-day trade mission. They work really well when it's policy and when it's funding and when it's backed up with real uh, ecosystem support from local regulators. And I look at the work that Japan's trying to do. I look at what Singapore's done very well. I look at the HKMA. I look at even China. I look at um, Germany. I look at some of the moves in Barfin as being, uh, and the Netherlands as well, as being some really positive developments to support startups. And if it were about supporting startups, I'd be very supportive of it. But this seems, I don't know, a bit like uh, Cloak and Dagger. Is it also just, I think, like an image perception? Maybe uh, Paris is a beautiful city, but I don't know. I think of Amsterdam, Berlin as more of a... More attractive. More attractive in that way. And certainly Berlin, I think there was uh, something out this week that like 60% of the European funding was heading to there. So, you know, they're, they're starting to see a lot more money pour in there. And like you said earlier, it's a cheaper place to live. It's Yeah, well, I said, well, I was speaking to a French lady last night at one of the FS meetups with Chris Skinner. I was saying to her about, you know, why would you come to London, yeah, rather than Paris? And she was saying, well, you know, because of the great food and the great wine and... Uh, no, that was a joke. I was going to say. Sarcastic But, um, no, no, but she, she... I mean, she genuinely loves being here yeah just because of the vibrance because of the pace because of the the sort of just this big mixing pot of different cultures and different people from around the globe and that is a great place to be able to you know produce a startup yeah so governments coming in from any country saying okay this is what we're going to do these are the policies we're going to set they're going to really need to get these foundations the ecosystem set up that's going to attract uh, real, real startups. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think um, you know the FCA. Lawrence has talked about this a lot from from Innovate Finance. You know, like the there is so many different factors that has made London a, a kind of a capital of fintech in terms of what's there. But definitely, the the regulatory climate has been one of those. You know, it feels quite sad, and, I, and there's lots of sort of headlines about us. You know, people coming and stealing something, but it kind of actually feels like we're giving it away to a certain degree. You know, it kind of feels like all of the sort of misfires are our own doing with regards to, you know, the climate that we've got and the sort of indecision over the next sort of 24 months about the, you know, what is, what are we doing? What does it mean? How will this pan out? You know, very similar to what we were saying about the the tandem stuff, really. It's kind of, it's the the feeling that we've actually sort of shown our hand and, you know, everybody knows that we're in a, a position of weakness currently. So that's why we've got, you know, France and Berlin and, you know, Amsterdam sort of rising to try and sort of take these pieces, which is nice of us to do a lot of the work and lay the foundations for everybody else. But it feels like we're, um, you know, we're definitely quitting on top, which is sad. So whilst um, I put away David's tiny violin, um, (laughs) (laughs) wipe away my tears, Um, I'm going to move on to the next story from Forbes, where digital disruption has arrived in fintech. So I'm going to throw this to um, a brief interview I did with uh, Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance, who wrote this article. Okay, so I'm here today with Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance. And Lawrence, uh, good to have you on Fintech Insider News. How are you, sir? I'm well, Simon, and delighted to be here. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, um, interesting story that you've put in Forbes this week. You uh, contributed a story about an organization called ClearBank. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about who ClearBank are and, and what it is they do? 
Well, I had the opportunity to go to the Clearbank launch here in London on the 28th of February. And uh, I have to say I was blown away uh, for for a couple of reasons. Um, One, uh, it's the launch of the first clearing bank or an authorized clearing bank in over 250 years in the UK. Uh, uh, We currently have four through history now. We had a, a larger number, but we've got four. And uh, it is what we would call a digital clearing bank. And the, the reason I was you know, blown away with it is that, one, Nick Ogden, the executive chairman, who's a, a serial entrepreneur and his team of 30 or so developers and partners, including Microsoft, it's all on Azure, and the regulators have been working on this for three years and have managed to keep it a, a secret, which is extraordinary in any city, not, not, not just the city of London. But two, I think, Simon, as you would know at 11FS, uh, as really observers of the fintech ecosystem, we've seen a lot of uh, business model innovation in retail fintech and payments, remittance, um, FX, uh, that's used the current infrastructure, as we call it, rails, um, at a very marginal cost to deliver some really, you know, re- really great new diverse price competitive propositions. You know, it's fair to say that that's extended into things like peer-to-peer crowdfunding, etc. But, you know, most of the the innovation we've seen in fintech to date, from from my perspective, has really been in in the business model and in the, you know, the the proposition, uh, the innovation of the proposition. ClearBank is an infrastructural uh, disruptor in that this is right at the heart of the rails of the plumbing of banking. So I think it's important for us to to, to really pay attention to this. Certainly. I think the fact that you're going into the plumbing and you're really taking the thing that banks for so long thought was their special source, that they were the only ones with access to it and everybody else had to play by their roles. Somebody playing in that space is is really, truly disruptive. So what does this mean for fintechs and, and the market generally if somebody's offering this kind of access? Like, what could I do now that I couldn't do before? Well, the, the extraordinary thing about uh, about ClearBank is that it isn't just uh, a clearing bank, so offering uh, clearing services, which means that, you know the payment I make to you, to you from me gets to you, however that's made, you know through our bank accounts or through different payment schemes. But it's managed to link in uh, the seven big payment schemes in the UK, uh, which are all run by you know various elements or consortia of the banks anyway. And and so if I were a fintech starting up right now, I would have different access points should I want to take Visa, MasterCard versus money transfers, uh, you know, direct payments. There are all sorts of different payment schemes I would need to to link into. And I, you know, again, I'd still need a clearing facility. Uh, all UK regulated entities that are going to be uh, dealing with the transfer of funds need, you know, in essence, need a clear. And what ClearBank has done is delivered a, a single API that accesses all of the payment schemes and provides those clearing services. So whether I'm a, a challenger bank, a, a new digital bank starting up, or a fintech in any one of the different fintech you know, segments or verticals that requires uh, access, not just to clearing, but access to the different payment systems, you know, I've got one plumbing API to deal with. Uh, it's a digital one. 
uh, it's secure. The reason ClearBank have chosen Microsoft and Azure is that Nick Ogden claimed that the expenditure that Microsoft is making uh, in security has really outpaced anything that he's seen in the industry. So I think just both the, the ease and the efficiency of either a fintech or an incumbent to access uh, one single API for all of the payment schemes and clearing rather than having to go through uh, the process of selectively accessing the ones they need, you know, provides a great degree of efficiency from from a starting point. I think if you're a current uh, user of any or or a multiple number of those services, it's likely you've already got those plumbed in and that the marginal cost of that infrastructure was probably done some time ago. So, you know, you may find yourself uh, with opportunities to really decrease uh, some of your infrastructural costs by by moving to a new platform like this. So, I think if ClearBank does all of the things that it says it's going to do on the on the label, and I think given the 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 PRA Bank of England, you know, the regulatory and the Bank of England authorization, um, along with the Bank of England in essence acting as its client account, um, it certainly holds out uh, the promise of something that's really quite revolutionary in in, in UK banking. Now, Lawrence, that makes total sense. If I'm in a challenger bank or I'm thinking about launching a fintech startup, getting anything in the hands of customers was hard because I had to be regulated. I had to have so much in place before and I had to have a relationship with a really big bank. And those really big banks had long-winded processes. Having something that looks and feels more like what developers are used to is disruptive because developers and small companies will pick this up and use it and build new things. And if you're a big bank that's used to being vertically integrated, very tall, very wide in your business model, um, I think this is a further sign of the trend towards you know breaking up what banks do all in one into smaller pieces and into platforms. Um, and it's really exciting. Uh, I know if uh, I was sitting out there thinking of launching a fintech startup, I definitely want to be looking at ClearBank. So, Lawrence, um, hugely uh, informative. Thank you so much for writing the article on Forbes, and, and thanks for being with us on, on Fintech Insider News. Always a pleasure. And uh, I, I would say, Simon, that um, we were so impressed with uh, Nick and the ClearBank proposition that we've asked Nick to give a keynote address at our own summit at Guildhall on the 10th. Um, and, and to really tell, tell the story from his perspective. Of course. And uh, Lawrence, thank you again. Indeed. Thank you, Lawrence. Just as a reminder, we'll be at the Innovate Finance Global Summit in April and Fintech Insiders who want to join us can get 30% off tickets with discount code Fintech Insider. Sarah, did you have any thoughts on this one from a clear bank perspective? So we, we kind of already, we, we talked about this before we started, and this is kind of like, this is where I'm super excited to see fintech go. This is a proper, proper geek moment. But, you know, there has been a lot of a lot of consumer-facing stuff, you know, a lot of really interesting stuff on the, you know, personal finance management, uh, consumer banks that's happened already. But, you know, for any of that to have any real impact, and indeed for any kind of change to happen in the, the wider financial um, services ecosystem, those backends have got to be updated. They have got to be upgraded. They've got to be using cloud and API and all, you know, they may be buzzwords, but they are so important. Um, and that's why this story really, really excites me, because I think now we've got it. Now we've got that kind of key piece of the infrastructure. We can start to see movement. Um, and, you know, we were talking about this earlier. It's, they're not just looking to serve fintechs. They're going to try and serve the big guys, too. They're going to try and serve the banks, too. And, you know, if you're a sensible, innovative retail bank or even, you know, commercial bank out there, 
you can you can use this too. You can speed up your processes. You can innovate more easily if you if you connect with these guys. Exactly. So if I'm Nationwide or Santander or ING or any of those banks that has a UK customer base but isn't one of the four clearing banks, I mean, this is huge. Um, and I think also there's a feeling that like because it's written in old language, like clearing banking, it, it loses some of the excitement of it. But I think the thing here is um, this is all being run on Microsoft's um, Azure. Um, so it's, it's all running in the cloud natively. Uh, it's got the PRA, FCA, and Bank of England approval. This is like not just a rubber stamp. This is like an oldie-worldie like kind of seal <laughs> in wax from the establishment, uh, which is which is pretty hard to get. So I'm amazed that this has been in stealth for for kind of three years. Uh, so this is kind of uh, one that uh, is pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know if Alex, Aidan, you had any thoughts on this. Yeah, I think this is a fantastic development. And I mean, you only have to look across to Berlin, yeah, and you look at Solaris Bank and what they've achieved, and then I see the innovations that have been able to really accelerate and come through, like uh, BankUp or Penta. I mean, you know, they can just produce these uh, propositions in, you know, almost like light speed, yeah? So <laughs> having, having, <laughs> having this capability available. I just see that this is just going to really fuel innovation. So this feels slightly different to Solaris for me. I, I take your point. Solaris is exciting because I can build like the technology of a bank myself easy and quickly. But the thing I couldn't do if I had Solaris was get access to local clearing. With this, I've got access to local clearing. Sure. Now, it doesn't say how hard it is to then connect to them. Um, I'm sure that's not going to be easy and trivial. But but what I could imagine is this really changing the market. And, of course, um, our friend of the show, Richard Piers, um, was, was behind a lot of this at Microsoft. And Richard has um, been on the, the FinTech Insider News show five or six episodes ago. So um, definitely check out and add to your LinkedIn. And speaking of um, people doing interesting things in the market, we've got um, FinTech Startup uh, and Challenger Bank now. Revolut, they're launching an Amazon Prime-style subscription service for banking. A new business model in banking. How about that? Like, this is really something, David. What's going on here? Yeah, exactly that. You know, we, we talked about this a few episodes ago, I think, when we had Asimo and, and Monzo on. But actually, you know, how do you really sort of deliver more, you know, digital business models within the, the banking sphere? So I'm not too sure it's necessarily Amazon Prime-style other than the fact that it's a subscription model. Because really, Amazon Prime, you don't get or you can eat on everything in terms of what you're doing. But the idea is basically it's a premium paid account. So you pay $6.99 a month, £72 per year, and that gives you access to unlimited money transfer services, which without any of the, the sort of typical fees that you'd get by most of the other providers in this space, actually offers a pretty impressive deal for somebody who's quite heavy users. I guess you're, you're still sort of balancing out that, you know, or you can eat Chinese buffet versus just ordering the things that you want when you need them. You know? But it's a subscription model I like, right? So instead of trying to make money on the spread for a transaction that happens once a year, you've got Revolut, whose customers are mostly people who do heavy users of travel cards, heavy users of international FX. So rather than going to their bank, they were probably using Revolut already. The difference was Revolut were not making any money. They were probably losing money. This is a way for them to make money, and they're not hiding it in the spread. Like, that's why I like subscription models. It's not a hidden fee. It's kind of obvious. And if you look at Netflix or uh, you know Amazon Video or uh, Spotify, people are willing to pay for content. Like people don't necessarily want to just go pirate everything. The only time they'll do it is when they can't find it on the thing they're paying for. So I, I like the business model. I'm just uh, not sure this is a mass market play. 
um, but the business model could be. Yeah, £72 a year is like nothing when you start using it reasonably heavily, isn't it? The, the thing that I always sort of find with this type of stuff is once I've paid for something, I'll use it like crazy. Mm-hmm. If I feel like every time I use something, I have to pay more for it. It's like when, you know, like we used to have one gig a month of data on your mobile phone and you were like weighing up, do I look at Facebook or do I send a work email? Uh. Like now you just do any of them and it's fine, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, all you can eat plans are, are definitely a, a good thing going forwards. And, and like you say, the sort of transparency of those fees is a great thing as well. There's no, it's 5% on the first X and then it's 10% on the, the like, just, it's just, completely transparent pricing. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm in a bank, why wouldn't I just blatantly copy this? Because like the those bundled accounts with banks where you maybe get a bit of travel insurance and maybe you get some other like insurancey thing that you never use. Rather than bundling me a load of stuff I don't want for those premium accounts, why don't you bundle this in those premium accounts? Because they make a lot of money doing it hmm. the other way. But, but they do. I mean, we looked this up we, we, when we wrote, we looked at this item as well. And a, a two or three of the premium accounts that you're talking about, you know, you pay five pounds a month, 15 pounds a month, whatever. They do give you discounted currency exchange. That is one of the things they offer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm... It's a packaging thing. Yeah, it's packaging. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued by this because for, to start off with, Revolut were going to be just one thing, right? They were going to be money transfer. And then, you know, I don't think that I'm breaking it, uh, any secrets here when I say they realised they couldn't quite make enough money that way so they had to look at doing something else. So we kind of like they were going to be a digital bank or a neobank or whatever you want to call them. Now, it's a super crowded market, so how do you stand out? So I completely understand your point about, you know, going for the subscription. I just, I kind of think this isn't going to be enough. They're going to have to bring in other revenue streams mm. because I don't know how many people are going to pay £6 a month for unlimited transfers because the kind of the exchange stuff you can get elsewhere anyway, unlimited. I know that we, we actually spoke to them and... And they said they reckon about 18% of their current users are going to go after this, which is eh, about fifth. Okay, that's a reasonable take-up. But it feels like, to me, it's, it's one in, a, one in a, a strand of revenue streams. They're yeah. going to need to get up there. And I know they're doing other things, and they've got partnerships, peer-to-peer lenders, as you say. But um, I find Revolut fascinating, because every time they do something, I find myself slightly taken off you know taken from the side pipe as it were like <laughs> what really they're going over there okay fine you know I, I think it's interesting though because like none of the big banks ever started with all the stuff that they do do they you know I think it's almost uh, organically it's grown into opportunities by having because they've got a pretty significant base haven't they Revolut in terms of the, yeah, the so numbers that they've got so the only thing I found online was 160,000 users from a Business Insider article on the 15th of April 2016 they've got 550 so they've got over half a million mm-hmm. who they say are users I don't know how many of those are people like <clears throat> my boyfriend who has a card in his wallet and may never have used mm-hmm. it but you know that, that's what they say I mean so if you look at it it's about 90,000 of the people they've already got yeah, that's so... 3.3 million in revenue a month since when when were they founded? Oh, I don't know the answer to that. Oh, less than two years. Less than two years. Yeah. So that's a run rate of yeah. 39 million, 39 and a half million in revenue uh, from just that business line. And I'm not sure their costs are going to be that much. That's a pretty profitable little business by the looks of it. Like, do they need more than that? Like, okay, it's not a VC multiple, I, um, but I think, it's. I think they're going to have to, you know. Jason sort of talked a lot before about, you know, is it an app or is it a feature? And, you know, playing to your, exactly to your point, Sarah, it's kind of what would stop somebody just doing this as part of, a, you know, a, a bigger challenger bank play and actually just eradicating the need to do that separately in terms of where you're at. Like nobody wants to carry another card. Nobody wants to have another app. Why don't you just integrate this into something? I don't know if I buy that. Like, 
if it, if Revolut were able to expand into more markets and get into the five ten million customer range, um, or somebody comes along and buys them like a Western Union and has a sub brand, like then they end up with ten fifteen twenty million customers, and suddenly that six pounds a month is like pretty decent revenue line. Then you're talking quarter of a billion, half a billion in revenue. That's a meaty business, and that's a VC multiple by that by that point. So I don't know. There's something about. There's riches in the niches. There's something about people knowing what Revolut does that kind of makes sense because if you do everything, nobody knows what you do. Sorry, that's niches over here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm if you say For our that American way. audience. But you see, but you see, I kind of almost think that they're doing the opposite, right? Because Revolut had a niche, and now, I, now every week I get a different press release saying they're doing something else, and that's what I mean by being slightly lost about where they're going. Yeah. Because I kind of I followed that they were going to be a new bank, challenger bank. I followed that, and then they were doing peer-to-peer lending, and I was like, oh, interesting. And, you know, what what kind of KYC, AML questions are we having there? And now on top of that, they're talking about unlimited money transfers across Europe. And again, I'm going to go, hmm, okay, if I was a regulator, I might be interested in that. Sorry, that's just sort of a, a separate point. So the initial point being that um, they are doing lots of different things, and I'm, a, you know, it might be slightly confusing. The second point is th- there's a lot of money going backwards and forwards there, which, which may be interesting to some, you know. I was going to say, is, is, it, is it an easily copyable business model? Yeah, I mean, like I'm not, you said, David, someone else could just come along and say, okay, well, we'll do it for six fifty. So or I, I take Sarah's point there, though, mm. that it's like because they're pivoting so much, is this going to be all they're going to do? But I, I disagree with David's point that you can't only be a, a money transfer business. You can, and you can be that very successfully. But I don't think you can be that and dress up as be uh, dress up as being a challenger bank. That's where the confusion's coming mm. from. So, so pick what it is you want to win at and win at it if you're a startup. Up and then think about what your second and third product is. But, uh, but I think on that, though, I think the, the incumbents are so ingrained there, right? For all of the noise that people like TransferWise make, then they make a, they're a blip in um, Western Union's kind of graph, aren't they, in terms of what's there? So, so I think there's a, there's a scale play there, isn't there, in terms of kind of what you, could, what you can kind of do around doing it. That's what I mean, surely. This is a, a great exit for Revolut is to one of those, you know, to a MoneyGram, to an Ant Financial, mm-hmm. to, to somebody like that. But actually this subscription model overall um, with a really simple product feature, really unique. Like Spotify only does one thing. Netflix only does one thing. People will buy services that they understand and are very simple and they'll subscribe to them. Gen- generally, people don't though, do they? They start with one thing, do it well, and then leverage the opportunity that they have or the community that they've got to do something else and, and make additional revenue streams. Spotify I'd, I'd love to kind of get to the point where, you know, I'd love to graph this out. Like, you know, Lloyd's Banking Group, what product did they start with and like how long after they did that first product did they move to doing mortgages and savings products and you know ices and almost like that sophistication of like layering on and you know the 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 acquisitions that they made to kind of bring in those credit card things and you know like that would be an amazing thing to do it's the same with the tech giants though as well amazon retail store but they now run half of the internet but there's there's there's, there's ways there's a certain age and a certain scale where that makes sense the, like Facebook now does about five or six different things, although they make money one way, which is really the, the advertising revenue. There's Spotify only really do one thing. Netflix only really do one thing. There, there is this t- new type of media giant. There is this new type of subscription service business model that is very focused. And I wonder if by trying to have the old operating products with a new business model, we're actually missing the opportunity. The opportunity is actually for a more disconnected, more uh, broken up set of services where people have relationships with more individual brands or somebody comes and re-aggregates that later, which is all into a marketplace, which, which yeah. makes total sense. Anywho, now it's time to hear from our sponsors. Critical Mass. 
That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just one reader's choice, best emerging innovative technology product and service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. And thank you very much to our sponsors. Aidan, we've got another story here in banking technology, and I promise not to rant for at least 30 seconds when you read this one out, but apparently the Bank of England teams with Ripple for cross-border payments. What's going on there? I'm going to read this out, Simon, because I don't really understand this story, but you're going to give some great insight into it. I'm going uh, to rant, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the Bank of England's fintech accelerator has teamed with Ripple for a cross-border payments proof of concept. In this latest development, the proof of concept with the Ripple is intended to demonstrate the synchronized movement of two different currencies across two different real-time gross settlement systems to show how this kind of synchronization might lower settlement risk and improve the speed and efficiency of cross-border payments. Go, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> this looks exactly like utility settlement coins. So I some thought pe- the same. <laughs> uh, so some people might remember that uh, we did a blockchain show, I think it was episode 108, um, talking about utility settlement coin, and it's a good one, just not at least because we had Vinay Gupta on the show, who's always good value, um, but also because we talked a lot about utility settlement coin, which is exactly this concept. So the problem largely being today, settlement risk is, will I get paid? Credit risk is, do I have enough money to pay you? When we're doing international payments, there's no central bank between for, for international payments. So my risk um, as a bank is with you, Aiden, and Aiden, your risk is with me. Whereas if we were to use the real-time growth settlement systems of a central bank, my risk would be with the Bank of England and your risk would be with the bank of whatever country you resided in, maybe Yorkshire, let's go with that. Which uh, <laughs> You're from Yorkshire too, you can't mock me for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm from the better part of Yorkshire. But we, yeah. West Yorkshire represent. Anyway. Because you've got a central bank and I've got a central bank, in theory, central banks are never going to go bust unless you're in Italy or Greece. Um, And then you've effectively reduced credit risk and settlement risk. Now, this makes total sense. But actually, this being a proof of concept, I think, is is sign of what Ripple are really good at, which is PR. They are really good at it. Because somebody has been doing this for, for nine months with a number of central banks, but it didn't get nearly the press. But what Ripple have done really effectively here, and in a lot of cases, is take this idea and get people to pay attention to it. Um, but also, changes at central banks' real-time growth settlement systems take time uh, and take a lot of effort. So this is a, a great proof of concept. I hope they do well. Um, but I, I definitely want to see more progress rather than talk on this one. I don't know if Alex, Sarah, you have any thoughts on this one? From the Bank of England's perspective, I think it's really interesting that they are actually putting things out there. I know it's a PR exercise, but I do I do, I do, do have confidence in the fact that, you know, we, t- we talk a lot about policy in this country. We talk a lot about how FCA and the PRA and the government and HM Treasury are kind of behind fintech. It is good to see the Bank of England at least trying. You know, it is it is looking at things. It is working, working on things that could be helpful. I mean, I, I have a certain amount of hesitation and I don't know whether a proof of concept will ever actually develop into anything. Um, but, you know, I like to know that they're trying at least. I think that's a good sign. <laughs> is it also a validation of Ripple? Is a, 
a, a badge of honour, surely, to be working with the Bank of England that gives them more credence. Don't, don't, Aidan, don't no. do it. Well, so <laughs> I, Sorry, I'm just going to bait Simon. <laughs> I, I think a proof of concept is is a proof of concept. If you see more than a proof of concept, that's when I'll sit up and take notice. But like, um, the, I think we'll see a lot more proof of concepts coming out of the Bank of England. They're, they're definitely trying to get more tech savvy. Um, the one thing I've found is that they are tech savvy, but actually this is more of a, we need to be part of these communities and we need to be doing it in a more public way. And I think that's what's changed here. My my experience with, with the bank has always been that they were eminently sensible, would understand every technology as much as they could. But when it came to upgrading the real-time growth supplement system and making recommendations on what that looked like, it didn't involve a distributed ledger at all. Um, it was, you know, it's cloud-based and it's very modern and it makes sense. But this is an organization that above all else is sensible, stable, secure, reliable. I mean, that's what they're focused on. It has to be. Well, that's what you want. It has to be a simple <laughs> yeah. bank. Thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> and absolutely, and long may that continue. Um, but there are some remarkably, like frighteningly intelligent researchers at the Bank of England who are on, you know, rightly trying to push towards what the cutting edge of what's possible is. Cool. Okay, so next story up is uh, one here in Reuters. Um, Goldman are building a robo-advisor to give investment advice to the masses. Um, so interesting theme of new things coming out of Goldman in the um, not-too-distant past. Um, so the, apparently this um, this follows the bank last year launching Marcus, its first foray into consumer lending, as well as a complementary deposit-taking platform after acquiring G Capital's online bank. They also acquired... Um, Honest Dollar, an online retirement saving platform. Like Goldman, the traditional investment bank, is actually making some real serious plays uh, into the retail space. And the robo advisory seems to sit, uh, you know, kind of right within their um, investment management division. Uh, Goldman's been trying to build that out to diversify its revenue, um, and that division posted a 1.38 trillion assets under supervision at the end of 2016. So we've talked about robo advisory like Nutmeg and Scalable Capital and these guys, but these guys are talking tens of millions assets under management, maybe a couple of hundred million assets under management. 1.38 trillion. This is robo advisory growing up in, in my opinion do, do, do we have any thoughts on this Sarah, David anyone else robo-advisory is one of those things that I think actually falls into two camps I think kind of robo-advisory term gets used to kind of overlay a lot of different things and I think it's quite important to understand what they're actually going to do You've got investment investment banks and you've got wealth managers. And on the wealth manager side, you've got Vanguard, for example, who are one of the first to come out there and say, we've got a digital offering and look, we've got $30 billion, you know, assets under management. But actually what that is, is a really snazzy front end with a couple of already existing, you know, mixed asset portfolios on the back end. And they just sort of plop you into one. And then if you want to, you know, personalize it a bit, you have to get on the telephone and speak to somebody. And that's kind of traditional, traditional wealth management. So... That's all, all well and good, and I'm all for the digitization of that, but that's not, you know, what Scalable Capital and Nutmeg are doing, which is actual, fully digital, fully personalized, you know, algorithm managing on the back end type stuff. Well, so if we've had both Scalable and Nutmeg on the show, and, and they'll say, no, they're kind of doing the... You're going to correct me. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, they, they're doing um, portfolio theory as well. Um, so the actual amount of individualized, tailored is, is very... The, the, the way in which they tell you which of the 10 buckets you fit in is a lot more sophisticated. Right. That, which is what the, those younger robos yep. are doing. But actually, we're not talking about sophisticated AI learning about you and investing on your behalf right. for, for, for any of those guys, which... I 
I haven't really seen in the market at all yet. I mean, even Wealthfront aren't, aren't doing that kind of stuff. But I think what's interesting about this one is, as you say, those traditional wealth banks was targeting people with more than 50 million um, you know, kind of, of, of investable assets, whereas this goes all the way down to you know just those poor sods with only a million to invest. But it is a very different market where you, you kind of have a lot more of them. Therefore, you can't give them the kind of tailored personalized service you would have expected. So it's, it's a good development. I think this makes total sense, right? This, I, I guess the thing that I probably disagree with on this is that it feels like digital distribution of an analog product again, you know, very much in the vein of, of what you're saying with, with Nutmeg to a certain degree. It's the same stuff, just you've got a, you know, a website to interface with it rather than a, a man with uh, a lovely briefcase and some lovely shoes arriving at your house. So, you know, that, that sounds sort of it is rather... a lovely briefcase. Though. It is. It's a lovely briefcase. But, but that's, that's a step in the right direction, surely, to digitize something that, you know, yeah, has previously it, it may, not been available. Well, it, may, it makes sense for sure, but I think sometimes with the these leaps that when people do this you lose what the actual opportunity is particularly given the you know the technologies that they're actually using to start to uh, you know engage with these people so at the point where you you know very much we've seen this in in sort of the digital banking context you know people who've digitized paper to arrive at a digital statement and you know mobile is a, a a worse version of the the sort of digital banking statement. So it kind of feels like we're sort of stepping in that direction really with this. But I completely agree with you, Sarah, because it kind of feels like anytime anybody uses robo-advisory, they're, they're seemingly using it slightly out of context because it just means you know, the broader wealth management bit is where actually it feels like most of the opportunity and actually probably most of the opportunity for them as a business either to really sort of change the dynamic of their revenue but also the operating costs that they're actually got off the back end of this. It's acquiring a new generation of customers. Uh, wealth management for this generation looks very different to wealth management 30 years ago. And actually, if I want to acquire the next generation's wealth, millennials, in air quotes, younger people uh, who are starting to come into wealth for the first time uh, feel very different about what they want from their wealth bank than, than their parents. And Goldman recognise this, yeah, because actually they're really bullish on fintech, yeah? They're acquiring masses. If you look at the big players, Goldman's are really hot. Uh, in this space, so yeah, they they are on the cap table of a lot of an intro, many an interesting fintech company, and there's something to be said about the knowledge they must have gained from from that investment portfolio, um, and indeed from having analysts that are very hot on all, all things fintech. So they've also uh, got a very good tech capability. They've you know they've got, they've got a tech pedigree as well. Yeah, very they? good tech pedigree. You know. Yeah, no, definitely uh, one to watch in terms of an engineering culture and being more tech led, whereas uh, a lot of organisations are very suspicious of technology and. Uh, kind of you know, technology should be offshored and, and so on. But anyways, uh, that's a, a rant for another day. Speaking of, of technology, but um, making it more accessible in this case, uh, Aidan, there's a story here about Watson and tools are coming to, Watson tools are coming to fintech developers. Aidan, what's, what's the story here? Yeah, so IBM have had a big conference this week, IBM Connect, uh, where they've been announcing all manner of things. Uh, one of the things that caught our eye was uh, their IBM Cloud for Financial Services. Uh, and we spoke to Davika Thapar, uh, about that. Uh, hello, I'm speaking with uh, David Kathapar, AI Chief of Staff for the IBM Watson Financial Services Platform. Hello. Hello. Uh, David, you were on episode 110 of Fintech Insider, so welcome back again. Thank you very much. Uh, IBM just launched a developer cloud as part of its Watson platform. Can you tell us more about what IBM is doing to help build the finance apps of the future? So this is an exciting one. We actually just launched this uh, this week on mon- uh, Monday. Large conference this week. I yes, believe. we had our Interconnect, which is uh, one of our big conferences of the year. 
um, aside from World of Watson, which happens in fall. And we had a bunch of announcements. And in the financial services space, what we've kind of launched is you can think of it as a curated app store for developers. Uh, and by app, I mean it's in it's a store of APIs, microservices, uh, data, and content provided not just by IBM, but even by our partners. So we've onboarded about like about 10 to 15 fintech partners, um, Plaid, Exignite, Dow Jones, Yachtly, and a few others who get to provide their services as well online. So it's really about how can we put the power in the hands of developers, both within smaller organizations like fintechs or even incumbents, to really be more agile as far as creating more innovative financial apps and bringing them to market. And I guess that, that kind of marketplace that you're aiming for, then I, hope, I guess that kind of leads into how you think that banking is going to play out, what the future of a, AI's role in that, as well as more an ecosystem of fintech players. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you really said it out there. It's about, I think, as we're seeing with, you know, the word disruptions overused, but, but there, is, there is a significant amount, you know, particularly in the front office, but even slowly in the middle and back office within, within incumbents. And one key towards, you know, staying ahead of the curve is being, is having speed to market and also having flexibility in terms of what you bring to market and um, being agile with how you can adapt it to be, to actually meet the business problem that you're trying to solve for the customer. And it's hard to do that when you're trying to dealing with legacy uh, systems, legacy tools, uh, or you're dealing with release cycles that take six months long. So how can we imagine a world where you have uh, an ecosystem of players, large and small, all kind of being able to pick and choose the microservices that they want to use to be able to create a service or an app that makes sense for that makes sense for the for the end user, uh, which is exactly what we're doing with the platform. If you log on to it, you'll see we've already kind of created some of the art of the possible starter kits of of what it could look like by you know plugging and playing different uh, different microservices. So perhaps that could be the bank of the bank of the future. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Devika, for that interview with Aiden. Um, anybody any got any thoughts on this one, David? Maybe. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. I think there's, uh, you know, very similar to what we were saying about robo-advice, really. It's like Watson means a million different things, and there's a lot of various different things in, in that box. So really, it just sort of depends on what it is that the these players are going to be able to get hold of and, uh, you know, really how it starts to sort of shape up what their proposition is. I, I guess it's a smart play for anybody who's really looking to kind of become the de facto in that market. If you start to open up and start to allow people to, you know, use this and, and really sort of shape out how your business is actually working, very similar to, to people like Google have done in the past with things like maps, then, you know, at the point where it's the easiest, quickest, and the uh, the best thing to integrate to, then people will start using it as the default. It's interesting that the oldie-woldy vendors are now really moving forward into this, and some of the newer vendors as well is, is this marketplace piece. It seems like fintech is something that's moved into the vendor community to banks in, in a big way, and, you know, this is encouraging from IBM, but, you know, Temenos has had a marketplace for some time. It's, it's something that uh, there's a recognition that they can't supply everything to you, and actually there are some small companies that could supply you well and let's pre-integrate them. It's, it's an interesting idea. I think IBM have got good sort of heritage of doing this type of stuff though before. I think they've, you know, they've given away a lot of tin to become the de facto approach of doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, you know, getting people into using your product or your service is, is kind of half the battle. Once they're there and they're happy with it and they're using it, then they'll probably use it forever in a day. 
Uh, I think they've picked some interesting players. I mean, I've been watching Exignite for quite a while because they themselves tried to create a little uh, API kind of ecosystem with lots of players in a similar space coming together to say, come on, guys, we've got all this data. Let's let's do that. And I, I've been wanting to see that f- from a fintech point of view for a long time. So it feels like a smart play to me, probably a bit biased towards it. You know, IBM are getting all these API guys to, A, potentially give them a bit of, again, a bit of credence, but also just... Can you also plug into Watson at the same yeah, time? And it, yeah. What can we mix together here? It's, it's very interesting indeed, and, and kudos to IBM for a good uh, IBM Connect conference. There are a number of other talks there that were pretty interesting, and they've they've even repackaged the mainframe to be cloud ready, which I think is pretty interesting. They've uh, the old mainframe is seen as now an alternative to just having lots of uh, scalable commodity hardware in your data center, and actually the mainframe's got a facelift and making it available for this modern age and. As an upgrade path for a lot of banks that are sitting on mainframes. Interesting idea. Like, I genuinely raised an eyebrow. Did they actually call it cloud ready? Because I was burnt when I bought a TV in like 2005 that said it was HD ready. (laughs) And it turns out it wasn't HD. Like, is it like, you know, pseudo cloud? I I haven't bought a mainframe. I was going to say, is that the same when you buy a Z series and it says cloud ready and you get burnt? A bit more expensive. Well, we shall see. But they had some cool names. And um, certainly the the pictures of them looked a lot more like they were selling uh, like a a high end gaming PC than than anything. So I think they know their audience of buyers in, in banking is has changed generations a little bit but uh, anyways um, broader point well done IBM on, on, a, on a good initiative Aiden next story up uh, penultimate story is one from ZDNet where Westpac keyboard launches through uh, Facebook and Twitter what, what does that mean exactly uh, well why don't I hand over to our research expert Megan who's interviewed uh, Guy Talmy the CMO at Paykey I'm here with Guy Talmy, CMO of Paykey. Um, Guy, could you explain what Paykey does? Sure. Paykey is a social uh, banking solution enabling bank users to actually make peer-to-peer transfer within any social and messaging application. Uh, with our solution, uh, bank users don't have to onboard a dedicated app while they are on a social conversation and can initiate the peer-to-peer transfer straight from any application they are using for, for the social conversation, be it WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, Twitter, or any other application they may use. Uh, our solution our solution is a white-label solution, so we uh, sell it uh, to banks uh, globally, and we actually integrate uh, on an API level uh, with the bank mobile banking app. Hence, it's a, it's a very easy, uh, straightforward uh, front-end integration that enables banks to use our solution and launch it quite quickly. Cool. And we saw this week that Westpac in Australia um, has launched this feature. How are Westpac customers using this? Actually, they have just launched it. This is our second uh, commercial launch after Sparebank 1 in uh, Norway. So we are very excited about it, obviously. Um, Westpac has actually added additional functionality uh, to the basic peer-to-peer. So... Their perspective of uh, our solution is really to enable any banking uh, functions or uh, to select actually a few key banking functions and enable the users quick and instant access uh, from the keyboard. So actually what they did is in addition to the peer-to-peer functionality, they added two more functions. One of them is cardless cash, enabling users to actually send a, a, a code to a family member or to a friend, uh, and that uh, with that code, 
the user can actually go to an ATM and withdraw the cash. This is a one-time code that can be used for cash withdrawal from ATMs. And other features that enables users to send their banking accounts uh, to their peers uh, while they need it. So they actually, uh, the payment experience is, is more uh, comprehensive. It has more features uh, and it actually uh, brings up more functionality into the keyboard than just the peer-to-peer payment. That's really exciting. I would love to see something like that in the UK. I think it'd be super handy. Okay, thanks for that, Guy. That sounds really, really, really cool. Um, and looking forward to seeing more banks implementing PayKey. Okay, with pleasure. Thank you very much, Megan, for interviewing Guy. And, and well done to Guy over at PayKey. So, David, any thoughts on this one from Westpac? So, I, I really like this this idea, if I'm honest with you. I think, um, you know, payments have, have very much been sort of stuck in that uh, sort of non-contextual siloed play. You know, you open an app to go and do a thing, you know, the, and really pretty much all of the against every sort of benefit of why people have been sort of getting all gushing about Uber over the last sort of three or four years. You know, what you really want is you want payments to be kind of in the context of the, the conversations that you're, you're having, which is why the, the rise of things like WeChat and everything has been so successful. But I think you need it much more agnostic than that. You know, if I'm in Facebook or if I'm in Twitter or if I'm in uh, WeChat or Snapchat or whatever it is that I'm doing at the time, then I need the ability to be able to do those things in the context of that rather than and in the context of me signing up for you know a payments thing in Facebook and a payments thing in Twitter and so I think the the idea that agnostic contextual payments is the way forward I completely agree with I do believe though that maybe the operating systems are the place for this to happen so you know I kind of think the play on this one particularly in the Apple context where the payments ecosystem is moving to having much more integrated capability into all of the devices that they're actually putting out there so touch ID into laptops and iPads and everything then you've kind of got uh, I'm seeing Simon's eyes roll into the back of his head as I mentioned all of these shiny aluminium covered <laughs> products but you know the idea that you've got a full ecosystem that actually payments can be controlled through I think is a kind of a great thing really so you know if somebody could come up with a OS agnostic one and go completely over the top of this which really given the fact that this will work across Android devices and uh, iOS devices then it kind of feels like a good solution to me yeah I think I think it's a cool idea I agree with a lot of what you've you've said but I I think there's kind of some intriguing questions here, and there's quite a few things that I would like to know before, I, before I'm expecting to see it, you know, appear everywhere. The first is, you know, third-party keyboards haven't historically done brilliantly as, like, kind of something to necessarily add on, unless they've been bought and added into an, you know, into an ecosystem or bought, bought by, I'm thinking of Swipe. But, like, generally speaking, if you download a keyboard, it drains a lot of battery. People are kind of confused how to use it. There's, there's, they always have the one app that it doesn't quite work with. The other point is, you know, one that you made, that it necessarily having as a, th- a third-party um, add-on is not, not a great idea, you know, incorporating it into the broader ecosystem would be better. Um, I think there's also the great thing here is just just to mention that I love the Australian banks. They do so well, you know, having just the four of them and keeping the, the financial system over there quite closed and keeping innovation to themselves. And they don't want Apple Pay, but they're going to do this. They're going to have a keyboard. And it, it, it kind of like, great, okay, let's see what happens. Like, I'm not, I'm absolutely not against it. I just think it's fascinating that the Australian banks sort of tend to do things their own way. This is them trying to sort of take the fight back to Apple and take payments into their software. Mm. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. <laughs> like, I am an avid, avid user of SwiftKey, which is probably you know, more used than the default Android keyboard. This is 
a great idea, but I don't get why this isn't SwiftKey doing it. Like if it was SwiftKey doing it and, and somebody in that space, but it, the fact that it's somebody selling to the banks who put it in their app, then it overlays somebody else's chat app. And then what I'm really worried about isn't the fact that it sits on my keyboard and I can press pay. It's what the other person has to do to get that money, which is usually a hop, skip and a jump. Um, on our 11FS Pulse platform at the moment, we've got the um, video of TransferWise inside Facebook Messenger. And when you look at that video and when you see that user experience, you see that it's all great if you're already a user of TransferWise and you're just connecting that to Facebook. But if you're becoming a user of TransferWise for the first time to send a payment, that's kind of painful. And if the person you're sending the money to is becoming a user of TransferWise for the first time to receive the payment, then you've got a real kind of adoption hurdle for people to be able to use it. It needs to feel slicker. It needs to feel simpler. And with some of the um, contactless payment fee um, you know, transaction limits for you know, below £30 needing no authentication, and with the same coming towards PSD2, you could kind of just set somebody up a little wallet account and say that they have the money and that they can move the money into their account more or less straight away if the value is less than £30. And if they try and do that more than five times, then you sign them up. Like, why aren't people being more imaginative with this stuff? Anyway, rant of the day over. Um, we've got to move uh, somewhat swiftly on because uh, there's another story that we need to get to. And the headline for this, BBC Mountain Man. Now, I don't want to read the second part just because I like that so much, but BBC Mountain Man the bank boss who reached the top aged 33. David, what's this about? And are they somebody who lives in a hut? Or they are, <laughs> are we looking for the Yeti here? Or uh... I, like Genuinely, I'm not sure really what the BBC was thinking on this one, to be honest. I think this um, the whole article reads a bit Buzzfeed. condescending, if I'm honest. So the idea of the mountain man is, is uh, this uh, young gentleman, 33 years old, Joe Gordon, who is now taking on the CEO of First Direct. So he, apparently he is the youngest person ever to be made the a top UK banking industry executive, which is a pretty pretty good going task in terms of doing it. But the BBC seemed to be sort of more interested in knowing that he used to work at Sainsbury's and what he does for a hobby, uh, really, rather than actually kind of his experience to, to date in terms of where he's going. So I, I guess, like, well done, Joe, for getting a really, really good job. And, um, you know, hopefully the other PR that comes out of this one is is a little bit more interesting. It's interesting to maybe look at his background because actually big background in, in BT in terms of the, some of the things that he'd done there and head of uh, contact centers over at HSBC, ahead of taking this role at First Direct. So, you know, First Direct's real secret source has always been the, the service that's been delivered through its contact center. So clearly for me, this looks like a reinforcement of the commitment of, of First Direct to really differentiate around, you know, the ability to press a button and talk to a person. I mean, they've, by some measure, the most recommended bank in the UK. They have been for a long, long time. And that's basically off the back of a brilliant call centre. Having worked there myself and been on those phones, uh, there are brilliant people there. They skip the IVR, no automation. You just get straight through to a person in either Scotland or Yorkshire and they are empowered to solve your problem. It's not rocket science. Empowerment, but, how about that? But that's expensive. And is and, it enough? And is it enough? Well, uh, and and I, that's the challenge is what that... And I a, have, you need to yeah. keep that service, but there's a whole lot of digital that you need to uh, really build on that. 
I think the um, the thing that I've always sort of had a bit of a problem with with uh, regards to sort of first directors. So they were founded in 1989, um, not the Taylor Swift album actually in 1989. Uh, and what the the acquisition just has never really sort of stacked up to me. So mm. I think they're currently sitting from the public figures about 1.6, 1.7 million customers, which having existed for that period of time you know, it doesn't feel like a great deal of success to me in terms of where they're going. I think the other thing as well is that actually I think by being so preoccupied with uh, contact center proficiency and actually the service that you get through that is that most of the people that you talk to who are clients of theirs actually have become almost de facto knowing that that's the best way to get the best service, which means you sort of pick up the phone ahead of really trying to self-service through any digital channel. Um, and given that a lot of the guys that started First Direct have sort of left and gone and started Atom, then you know those guys clearly saw something in terms of a, a gap in the market to address it maybe more digitally than, than just the, the way in which First Direct were doing it. There's something sad here, though. If you look at the historic um, customer acquisition, it sort of stopped once. Well, it didn't stop, but it sort of slowed down dramatically and has, has bumbled around that number since HSBC got a hold of it and stopped adding funding to it. Um, and that's something about, okay, we're just going to buy these customers because they can sit in our balance sheet and it makes sense on a spreadsheet for senior management, but not that we want to acquire that culture and move to that platform and really do the reverse takeovers sort of thing where we get their technology and we start to service customers this way uh, and and that's that's a wasted opportunity because if you could have kept that culture inside the organization rather than just keeping it as it was and kind of mothballing the thing it's great for people who use that service but imagine if somebody built a first direct for this generation and i think that's what the challenger banks are really moving towards the idea that you have a human face on it an empowered um, employee base that can really help you with your needs is absolutely the right idea but people are now trying to do that with 20 first century tools and and I hate myself for using this word but people will know what I mean with an omni-channel kind of feel to oh. it I know but really it, it's what I mean by that is using the right channel for the right service not starting something in one channel and moving it to the next because that's just silly people it's silly <laughs> but what I, what I do mean is that fact that you use the right tool for the solving the problem if the right tool is I just want to check my balance I don't want to call somebody for that I don't want to default to calling somebody but if there's chat in my app and there's a human behind that chat and they're really helping me and the way they're communicating makes sense, then that totally makes sense. So I think there's there's definitely something about a, the need a, for the first direct and then net promoter score shows it. There's a big debate there on a lot of people like to just ring up and check their balance, which is expensive, but that's a, that's a level of engagement that not many other banks have. And that's and that's is a tricky balance there in that you can be as digital as you want, but ultimately you, you are can loved you because you create of, the same experience? Uh, with digitally rather than... Yeah, analog. because if I'm still human behind it all and there's somebody there to chat and I can ask them to check my balance and they just keep saying, uh, let me Google that for you, or you know, like they're, they're playful with it, but there's, there's that human interaction, then they can say, well, you can just do this. And if you want to speak to me, you can speak to me anytime you like, but it's, it's right there. I mean, like... What, what, well, it, it needs to be the safety net underneath something that's more cost-efficient to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is where somebody like Monzo is doing it really, really well, isn't it? Where if ever I have had a problem, and I have had a problem, then, you know, the IM people are really, really handy to, to do it. And it works when I want it to, not when, you know, a call center is open. So I think the, the other um, dynamic to this one slightly is, like I say, if this is the uh, reaffirmation of, of sort of first direct strategy, as in, you know, telephony is our, our key thing, then, you know, what, how is this going to move them forwards in terms of kind of what they're doing? You know, it kind of feels like it's a, 
sort of a strategy from you know 1995. I think that's going to be the case. Is I think you know, a I'm intrigued. Hiring someone very young, first direct are desperate to get a younger customer base. When I was there, their average age of customer was about 47, and that wasn't going down, that was going up. So, you know, they sponsored the arena in Leeds, they're, they're keen to do that. So, you you know, you, you pitch that person, PR, normal guy, used to pick groceries in Sainsbury's, likes mountains, whatever. <laughs> That's 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 PR that's trying to fit into the message that they're sending. So, but it, but it hasn't worked in this sense, has it? Because if you like, so if you read the BBC like article, a... it it feels like a bit of a flame piece on basis of like it feels like I say rather belittling and on behalf of the uh, uh, as, as a journal. Do you think somebody got a stupid press release and was just angry about it? I mean, a... <laughs> <laughs> well, actually... we would never do such a yeah. thing. <laughs> I don't know what you but they actually got in touch with the person who he used to work for at Sainsbury's to get her opinion on this, and it's just like that was like. 15 years ago like it just doesn't yeah. seem relevant now you know it's like getting in touch with my high school teacher to find out what I was like and whether I'd be good well, at I, doing banking I know? would love to hear <laughs> <laughs> my report cards were pretty bad so yeah. it's not going to work out well. was he always trying to jump higher than people <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was it. I think the best thing that First Direct could do would be to be sold from HSBC so actually, if you could really differentiate themselves, they've got a brand, they've got something that people love, and actually they could step away from um, you know a, a really, really big organization, it would give them the agility that a smaller bank actually has. At the moment, they've got the brand, but they don't have the agility to do something interesting. Alrighty, so that's, that's all the stories for this week. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Tell a friend to subscribe to our podcast. Heck, tell your boss to subscribe to the podcast. That's what you really need to do. We, we literally had a listener... To- to, uh, actually tell us yesterday that he was going around and actually forcibly downloading it onto executives uh, iPhones at a bank so do more of that That's quite <laughs> fun. so just wander around different floors take the lift, grab people's phones and be that person um, we're not against it, it, it every little helps as, um, <laughs> as one sort of bank slash retailer says, but leave us a review on iTunes, uh, that helps people discover us and as we've mentioned twice in this uh, already, the Innovate Finance Global Summit is coming out as fast if you want tickets you can use the code fintech insider to get 30 percent discount from that show that's all for now until next time 